It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who want to listen to other people talking about vaccines. That that's pretty much by definition what it is. That is what it is. And, My- and not for bots. And not for bots or content polluters. Have you considered that maybe it's the Russian bots that are causing us to keep having um, technical difficulties here with our recording today, which we've had several of that no one else out there knows? No, they don't know because, I mean, it probably is. It's not content polluters. It's probably bots attacking us for talking about vaccines. Back off bots. Although probably they're not going to hear this because probably this is going to get dropped any second now. So whatever. (laughs) But if you hear this, it was a miracle. A miracle happened in front of you on your on your on your iPod on your phone. My name is Karen Ernst. <laughs> I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. I am Nathan Boonster. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we are going to hear an interview in a few minutes with Jason Mendelson, who is also known as Superman HPV. Mm-hmm. It's part of our National Immunization Awareness Month fandango. And (laughs) even though it's adult week and people usually get their HPV vaccines in adolescence, Mm -hmm. people can still get their HPV vaccines in adulthood. Mm -hmm. And uh, HPV vaccines prevent cancers that occur in adulthood. So we thought it was still very relevant for this week. Yeah, the vaccines... uh FDA approved up through age 26 and for you can even after age 26 you can talk with your doctor if you if you haven't gotten HPV vaccine and you think it might be of benefit to you you can certainly talk with your doctor although you probably have to pay out of pocket right so it's worth thinking about um, while we're here don't forget to get your flu shot this year and while if you're in the doctor's office don't forget to ask your doctor if you're up to date on all your vaccines or if your doctor recommends more vaccines yeah it's always worth pointing out that although doctors are pretty good about vaccines not every adult doctor is thinking about it all the time so it's worth a question pretty much every time at your checkup to, to find out if you're up to date with everything you can be I agree. And do you know, Nathan, who does not recommend adults go into their doctors and ask about vaccines? Um, I, I think Russian bots do not Ru- recommend that. <laughs> That's exactly it. Russian bots do not recommend that. We don't need a study to tell us that. But we have a study to tell us that the conversations about vaccines on Twitter are being polluted mm-hmm. by Russian bots trolls and content polluters yeah it was kind of an interesting one i am did not do my due uh, diligence here and have it pulled up so i can tell the author um but there's a recent study that's had several articles on maybe you can do that while i'm yammering on i'll I'll put the i'll put the author's names in the show notes okay so it it looked at a couple of things so it kind of looked at russian bots that were also a part of kind of sowing discord in the 2016 election and it looked at how often that they were tweeting about vaccinations and it also looked at what you called content polluters which are Mm -hmm. kind of as i understand it and don't you know nobody's gonna peg me for a, a an expert on the topic of like 
technology in general, but um, that that were accounts that could were trying to like distribute malware, viruses, etc., right. and whatnot. And so the those ones, the content polluters, tended to be tweeting anti-vaccine stuff. And I'm not quite sure what the strategy is there. Does that mean that those that were really into anti-vaccine stuff were more likely to fall for the trap? Maybe, or, or they just don't have virus protection on their computers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then the ones that were kind of the the Russian bots that were implicated in 2016 uh, kind of activities uh, were tended to be both sides, right? They were kind of more discord sowers. Right, uh, they wanted us yelling at each other. Yeah, which is kind of a nice little uh, lesson to take away from this. That uh, it's worth it, that that Russian bots, in fact, want to get us to yell at each other because they think that there's some goal in mind that benefits them. Uh, so, yeah. So kind of, I think, a good little moral to kind of try to keep. I, I You know, I don't, by no means do I ever want to be the tone police. But on the other hand, it's worth pointing out that there's probably uh, some people benefit from, from just us getting really angry at each other over this mm-hmm. topic. And the, the other thing that it seems that they were probably aiming toward was this sort of false balance in the media. So it looked like the debate and the controversy over vaccines was more robust than it actually is. That the debate side of it, the controversy side of it, is really fringe elements that Mm -hmm. the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans are there together believing that vaccines are our best ways of combating really bad diseases that we don't want to see. Yeah, it's actually the kind of the same strategy that the anti-vaccine movement tries to use because mm-hmm. they're, they're not really in a position to be the dominant voice, but they are kind of in a position to try to make it seem like they're getting equal footing or that they're scientifically on par with the pro-vaccine side and whatnot. So that same kind of strategy. And they had, so the hashtag that a lot of the Russian bots were using was hashtag vaccinate US, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you had seen that earlier this week, I think. I accidentally used it because I thought it was vaccinate us. Um, <laughs> I didn't understand it was vaccinate us. I was like, oh, Either vaccinate way, us. It's kind yeah. of an odd hashtag to use, wasn't it? Well, I think it was also a lot of the anti-vaccine like tweets would have hashtag vaccinate us, which seems like it's more of a pro-vaccine hashtag, but maybe they thought they were using it ironically. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It just shows my middle-agedness yeah. that I didn't quite catch on as quickly as I usually do to hashtags that, sure. you know, I still am sort of an analog thinker <laughs> instead of a digital thinker. Maybe you are. Oh, so you're, you're an old-fashioned Russian bot, actually. That's, yeah. <laughs> I think we figured that out. You're using that hashtag. You're speaking of yourself in analog and digital terms. And yeah. our, computer, our computer system here set up, keeps us. crashing. So yeah, it does. we found the problem. Yeah, if if you like this podcast, um, know that it's a lot more work than it sounds like. A lot more work for Karen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> with that um, ugly behind the scenes peek. Let's go ahead and turn to our interview with Jason Mendelson. You usually say roll tape here. Roll tape. 
And here we are again with Jason Mendelson. Jason is father of three children, two twins who are seniors in high school and an 11 year old boy. And he has been married for almost 22 years and he runs his family's business, which is amazing. And he is an HPV cancer survivor and runs Superman HPV website. And so welcome, Jason. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. So when was the first time you heard anything about HPV and cancer? When I got diagnosed is actually when I had first heard about HPV throat cancer. I had actually, um, I was raised in a medical family, so I knew a lot about other types of cancers. And I knew something about HPV just because, you know, most people know about HPV, but I'd never actually heard about HPV throat cancer until I got the diagnosis back in 2014. And your diagnosis um, specifically was? It was squamous cell carcinoma or stage four HPV throat cancer. And um, anyway, I found a bump on my neck and then I'm sure I'll have more questions about that, but that's what led to the diagnosis. Right. Yeah, so take us through that. You um, probably felt pretty healthy and you found a bump on your neck and then what happened? Yeah, the short story is I was taking a financial exam on a Thursday, put my hand on my neck to um, ponder a question on the test, felt a small bump, thought, you know, I don't have time to think about dying right now. And I was really joking about it at the time, thinking I was probably nothing. Um, a few days later, actually that night, um, went to see my father, who's a doctor, and said, what's this? And he said, um, let's call the, the ENT. The ENT told me to come see him in a few weeks because I didn't smoke or drink. And I'm like, I'll see you on Monday because I'm a guy that goes to the doctor. Right. And literally was feeling as healthy as I had ever felt in my entire life. I'd actually just dropped around 20 pounds and felt truly like I was in the best shape in years. Um, ended up, the doctor put me on 10 days of antibiotics and steroids. He said, in a slight chance this bump doesn't go away, we'll immediately schedule you for a needle biopsy and CAT scan. And I thought nothing of it. I literally went on the antibiotics, went to the Keys two days later on vacation with a bunch of friends, flew to DC where I lobbied on Capitol Hill for my industry, flew home on a Wednesday, um, Thursday had a CAT scan, Friday had a needle biopsy, Monday found out I had stage four cancer. You had to, I imagine, go home, talk to your wife, and talk to your kids. So what did you tell them? So when I found out I had this, you know, I, I was honestly startled, amazed, right? I mean, other people get cancer, not me. And I actually, um, my wife and my father were, were with me when I found out about it. I had called, um, on the ride home, I actually called both of my life insurance agents and said, um, can you please make sure my policies are automatic draft because I'm the one that handles the finances and I wanted to make sure they didn't lapse just in case I didn't make it. Um, I called a friend who happened to be a radiation oncologist and said, well, it looks like I'm going to become your patient. Um, I actually didn't tell my kids that I had cancer um, immediately and initially because my kids were young at the time, right? Today they're 17 and 11 back then um, they're obviously much younger 
And I just thought that was unnecessary. They knew I was going to have, my older kids knew that I was going to have surgery on my neck, but nothing about um, that it was cancer. I actually didn't tell them about cancer until I was through the surgery and felt, you know, a few months later that I was going to be okay. So tell us a little bit about going through just the process then after diagnosis um, in terms of the surgery, and I, I know you have a lot to tell in terms of what, uh, what, what treatment was like, how that, what kind of side effects there were, what life was like during that. Yeah, you know, it was, it was pretty brutal, I will tell you. I had a um, radical tonsillectomy neck dissection so my neck dissection means 42 lymph nodes removed from my neck and then i had seven weeks of chemo radiation and a feeding tube um, the biggest concern when you go through radiation to the throat you'll end up with third degree burns in your throat so uh, my concern and what my doctors told me i said what's my number one issue here they said people become dehydrated because it's so painful to swallow feels like there's glass in your throat that um they don't drink. And so I said, well, what can we do? They said feeding tubes. So I had a feeding tube where I had seven insurers a day, two, Gator two Gatorades a day um, through that feeding tube. You know, I took my blood pressure probably 20 to 30 times a day because I could tell when my blood pressure got elevated that I was becoming dehydrated. Again, not to be too graphic, but I never threw up during treatment. I never had diarrhea and I was never sweating yet due to the third degree burns in my throat, I was dehydrated quickly. A few hours after having fluids, I could become completely dehydrated. So I had to monitor um, my blood pressure, heart rate, all of that to know um, when I was becoming dehydrated. Um, I had radiation five days a week for seven weeks. And on Thursdays, I had chemo after radiation, so radiation would be like 15 minutes in the morning. Um, chemo was pretty much around eight to nine hours after that, from beginning to end, from you know fluids to treatment to then fluids again, and so it was it was exhausting. Quite honestly, I started that process process and probably you know four weeks into radiation, your saliva can become very thick, which mine did. And so I'm not sure if you understand what that means is that when you have radiation through the throat, they actually make a mask for your face. You lay on your back, they clip the mask down to a table so you can't move. So you only radiate the part of your mouth and throat that need to be radiated. And then you sit there and you pretty much lay there for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. So as the saliva becomes thick, right, from the radiation and treatment, you know, I don't know what it's like to be waterboarded, but I can tell you that it's very scary to be clipped down on your back and not being able to swallow. Mm. So that was, um, you know, not only exhausting and tiring mentally, but then after five to six weeks of that, I was in bed 18 hours a day mm -hmm. for probably a month, um, just being worn out from radiation and, and chemo as well. So then what was the process after that? How did you come back? I, I saw some of the um, things that you wrote on your website about um, the long haul back into doing the things that you like to do, which I think included biking um, and whatnot. Tell me about how long that took. Sure. 
Um, you know what? So when I was, l let me add, because I, I didn't say earlier that just to give you an idea of that treatment, I actually, when I, after going through treatment or while I was going through it, was so worried about the outcome that I made videos to my kids that said, you know, one day you're going to get married. I'm not going to be there. Mm -hmm. This is what's important. And I mentioned that to you because I wanted to mention as I was going through the treatment, you know, at the beginning, you're really unsure with a big diagnosis like stage four throat cancer, if you'll be there long term for your family. Right. So that was in my mind going through treatment. And then when I finally rang the bell, right, you ring the bell when you're done treatment. August 11th was my date, 2014. Um, and I thought, wow, I've crossed the line. Now things are going to get better. What I didn't think about at the time is that, that the side effects from radiation are cumulative. Mm -hmm. So it was actually when the hell was going to begin. And again, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but from August 11th, 2014, for the next three weeks, all the side effects and all the burns got worse because it was cumulative. So the three weeks after that was just exhausting. Once, you know, the, and that was gagging and choking 20 times a day. Once that was all over, um, slowly but surely, I began, you know, off, got off the feeding tube. I could start swallowing again sipping water and when you ask about the biking i was laying in bed during that time 18 hours a day and i got a video from one of my clients out of dc who is doing the ride to conquer cancer and they had sent a video with my name written on their cycling shirt and mentioned that i was one of the people they were riding for That's nice. at this large cancer event and so it was probably three to four months after that um period of finishing treatment that I started training. I actually was feeling better enough where I could start exercising. And they had asked me to train and ride with them the following year in the Ride to Conquer Cancer. And mm. that's what led to my activity in cycling passion at that time. Do you have, uh, I have a friend who has somewhat of a similar story to yours of, of HPV throat cancer. And he has the, his remaining, um, kind of permanent side effects include just not quite being able to taste like he used to. Do you have any permanent side effects or anything like that? I do. You know, fortunately my taste is back. So I, you know, after treatment, the one taste which would be sweet is the last to come back after chemo. And for me, I'm fortunate in that I got my taste back. Um, I probably have 20% less saliva than I used to have, which again, I'm not complaining because I feel fortunate because there's some people that don't get their saliva back at all. So I got you know all of my saliva back, probably minus 20%. I, have, um, I get Charlie horses in my neck a few times a month, like you would get in your calf from where I had surgery. Um, and it's basically just, you know, you turn your head the wrong way or a neck and your neck just starts to tighten. I use um, fluoride gel trays a few times a week. I used to use them seven days a week be to keep my teeth strong due to lack of saliva. Your teeth can become problematic as well as from radiation to the throat, the blood supply to the jaw can be a problem. So if you ever have to have a tooth extracted once you've been through radiation to the throat, um, you need to go see or let your dentist speak to your radiation oncologist. So, um, and I use Floridex toothpaste. So I use that to keep my teeth strong as well. 
Oh, and then lastly, I, I take Mucinex every day because it keeps my saliva a little thinner mm -hmm. than, um, than it would be otherwise. It sounds like <laughs> I keep thinking I don't have many side effects, but whenever mm -hmm. I, I describe them, like I think I just take things, like I just am a, naturally a positive person. Like every morning I get up and I shower, I put hot water in my throat so I can make sure I get any thick saliva out of my throat, right? I sip water all day, but it still seems... You know, a few years ago, I didn't think I was going to live. So right. I don't really think about these except when I'm describing them to people. Right. Well, I was going to say it might be because, you know, you described driving home from the oncologist and calling to make sure your insurance was the way it needed to be and making tapes for your kids because you were certain you weren't going to be there for them. So it may be that your expectations are such that you're grateful to have to deal with fluoride trays and <laughs> diminished saliva and having to take mucinex that those are sort of emblems of your s survival yeah I, I think you're right I, I i don't i didn't do this at the beginning but when i describe our family um if you're familiar with the waltons from tv from years <laughs> ago like john boy that group so um and if you're familiar with my big fat greek wedding <laughs> where family's really involved i always describe us as we're a combination of the two of those families and then sprinkled judaism on top and that's us <laughs> um, my um my um brother is my next door neighbor and our family business so i'm president of our firm my brother's ceo sister's evp father's on the board so we are literally always together so the idea that years ago you know i wasn't going to be seeing the age of 45 in my head to you know turning 49 here in september really makes me grateful right there's a lot of gratitude I don't complain very much like when you fly or travel or do things and people are going crazy when planes are late. I'm the guy that always thinks in my head, it's not cancer. Yeah. Like these little things, the steak's not cooked well enough. Not a time to like unload on the server because again, not cancer. It's not my last meal. So I'm always sure. thinking about things like that, which I think probably is the reason my outlook is positive when people speak to me. You bring up this closely knit, almost television-esque family. And one of the things that I hear from other survivors is the how, how little emphasis there is on how the diagnosis and the treatment affects the family um, in some pretty serious ways. I mean, you're describing how you were basically out of commission for weeks and weeks um, and needed help with everything. How did this affect your family, your kids? Um, that dynamic that must have been a very difficult time you know it, it was very difficult i'm a guy who speaks to my parents daily so my family my parents literally live five minutes from my house and so we're always together and so our kids were young at the time and my wife's biggest job was to protect our kids from me mm. which i choke up every time i say this and even though it's a few years later it actually really um, hurts me to my core. But so what I mean by that is I was always pleasant, but I did not want my kids to worry for one minute that their father was going to pass away. Right. That's a heavy burden for kids to think about mm -hmm. when they're going to school or with their friends or trying to go to bed at night. So my wife's job was keep our kids life, our, our kids lives as normal as possible so they are not always thinking about cancer 
and whether their dad's going to make it. So I would tell you one of the largest burdens, if not the largest, was probably on my wife, right? She's a rock. I've known her forever. We've been married almost 22 years, but I've known her since, you know, I've been 10. And the fact that she could maintain strength around our kids while also caring for me and keeping the rest of the house in in order and, and everything moving forward is really very impressive to me. Um, she's awesome, but I would say it most, it probably at the greatest level affected her. Um, I think my kids were young, so they knew about it. They would come in and put their head on my shoulder, but I don't think they understood how serious the situation could have been had it gone another direction. Um, my family business, I will tell you, my brother and sister and father had to work extremely hard while I was out of commission for six months or more because they were doing the work for all of us. So mm -hmm. while everyone was worried about me, they would always come over and check on me. They were having to do all my work, which was exhausting. And again, I know you'll like this. Hopefully you'll think this is somewhat comical. But when, um, you know, my parents knowing that their oldest son had cancer, everyone knows that parents love their oldest kid the most. <laughs> So I think that was probably, you know, mentally exhausting for them, right? In general, in life, people know that parents are supposed to pass away before their kids. Yeah. That's the way it works. And um, while that is sad in itself for all of us who, you know, are crazy and love our parents, the fact that they knew that I had cancer, um, I know was just mentally exhausting 24 hours a day. So I guess hopefully that's not too much, but that's our family. Yeah. And um and my friends were also great visiting often. So again, that's how it impacted the people around me. Well, I want to point out to to everyone who's listening that you've been with your wife for a very long time. And I think that's important because it's related to how HPV cancers manifest and why people sometimes don't see the need for an HPV vaccine that you can catch HPV and not see the effects for a couple of decades. So what have you learned sort of about uh, throat cancer and HPV disease since becoming an HPV cancer patient and survivor? Sure. And you know, and thank you so much for asking the question, because this is really critical and important to me. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about my the website that I launched, but being cancer-free and being able to help others through sharing my stories is the reason I do what I do, right? Many people say, why don't you move on? You survived. Why do you have to keep sharing it? And it's because of what I'm about to share with you now that it's so important to me. Because I, again, I was raised by parents who always said, do what's right, even when it's not easy, and be good to the people around you, right? tell the truth, be honest, help others. And so um, they believe I got the virus when I was in my late teens. I believe the numbers are, you know, something like 98% of the people when they get the HPV um, virus, they, they, it clears and they never know that they had it. Everyone pretty much is in agreement that three out of four adults by age 30 have HPV, 62% of freshmen in college, and men between 40 and 60 are the most highly diagnosed with HPV throat cancer. That I learned um, after the fact, right? I think I told you earlier that I'm on the um, executive board for the Head Neck Cancer Alliance, and I'm always trying to learn and, and help others. Um, the fact that I got this virus when I was in my late teens, probably in college, 
you didn't say it, hopefully I'm allowed to say it, but typically it's transmitted through oral sex with, with a woman with HPV is the way, the reason they say men are the largest number um, getting this, although women get it as well and others, um, other types of obviously cancers exist. But um, had the HPV vaccine been available when I was 11 or 12, I would have likely never gotten cancer. And I get asked all the time, or when I share my story, I, people always say to me, oh, I'm so glad I heard your story. I gave the vaccine to my daughter, not to my son. I had no idea it was for boys. And when I tell you, th this is said to me weekly, because when I'm traveling for work, which I do often, and people tell me they have kids or grandkids between nine and 26, I always tell them my story for two minutes, figure, mm -hmm. even though they don't know me well, if I can stop their children or their grandchildren from ever getting the cancer I got, um, and decades later, they're protected. I think that's important, but but they do believe that I got the virus. It laid dormant in my body from my, you know, and, and years later, right? So I was probably in my late teens. I got diagnosed and felt the bump at age 44, um, that that's what transpired. My father's best friend got diagnosed at 73. He'd been married 50 years. Oh, wow. I deal with people all over the country. As part of the Head Neck Cancer Alliance, I'm helping form a survivor patient caregiver network globally. I'm really focused right now in the US, but I'm dealing with people just like me all over the country, married 20 plus years, kids, and they always say cancer doesn't discriminate. Um, they literally have my exact same story and it's typically decades later that it's surfacing, if you will. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but I hope that oh, yeah. shed some light on what I've learned. Yeah, I one of the when you talk about those families that have immunized their daughters but not their sons, the the statistic that I always bring up, if I can remember it accurately off the top of my head, is, is somewhere around twenty six thousand uh, cases of HPV associated cancer a year in the United States, and a good third of those are in males. Most of those are your head and neck cancers, and then you have some of the other ones, the penile and anal cancers. But uh, it's not a small sliver, and I think that's, you know, it's not a small sliver of these cancers that are in males. It's a good chunk. Uh, and uh, that's not driven home enough because it's so often thought of as the cervical cancer vaccine. Right. And we really need to work on somehow messaging really well that, yes, this is a very important cervical cancer vaccine, but it is not only a cervical cancer vaccine. Right. And so often, I think Karen and I will both see online, we'll be having a discussion somewhere about, uh, or there'll be some news story about the HPV vaccine and how so-and-so is now starting, some country now starting to give. The UK um, this week. Yeah, they'll start giving it to, to males, and then some people are on there making cracks about, oh, how fantastic it is that those boys are not going to get cervical cancer. And I'm like, you know, it, it, it boils my blood. <laughs> because I'm very active with, um, with helping to educate people through, um, you know, my Facebook and through Twitter and through, you know, just webinars like this. But this year in 2018, you likely know that HPV throat cancer surpassed cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And we've been working um, with, in various discussions I've been with, trying and, and hoping that the vaccine will become indicated for HPV throat cancer, right? The reason most people think it's it's only for cervical cancer is because that's you know what's been proven to 
work towards preventing. But everyone knows that any, that knows about HPV throat cancer that the way people get that is through typically, I hope you don't mind me saying, oral sex with someone that has HPV, although they're saying it could be from other um, ways as well, right? Just saliva mm-hmm. exchange. People have even said deep kissing. But again, I think as people begin to realize that their friends, family members, and others that you know are being diagnosed, I think it's going to become much more it is more of an epidemic and the more people go public and share their stories, the more parents will understand that it's not just for their daughters. The thing too, that I see happening that could become more prevalent in the next few years is that so many of the men being diagnosed with HPV throat cancers are that 40 something age where they have kids who are, you know, tweens and teens and and in that age group to get vaccinated and a lot of times what happens with men with any health issue but particularly with throat cancer is that they sort of retreat into themselves and no one sees what the the struggle is like no one sees what the battle against throat cancer is like but you've been public and I I do want to ask you about going public, why you decided to go public, and what you've been working on and hoping to accomplish. Thank you for asking. Um, so I, I always tell people that, you know, I'm not trying to become famous. I think there's some people that go in the media because they want to become well-known. So I have no desire to become famous. Um, my single purpose is to have my cancer story shared in as many languages as possible on all seven continents to save lives worldwide. Um, and and hopefully you'll like this little story, but the reason I feel that way is when I first got um, diagnosed and I went through treatment, a local Jewish newspaper in Orlando, who literally, they've been around forever, the heritage, and they, they even published my bar mitzvah when I was a kid. Well, they <laughs> shared my story in the local paper Well, I found out through a series of connections that there's this organization that deals with all the other papers. Well, it turned out the Jewish papers in Minneapolis, Memphis, Denver, Tucson, you know, all over the country, Oregon Jewish News, all of them started sharing my story. Well, I was speaking to my family and I said, you know what? I'm glad that I'm saving lives within the Jewish community. But reality is this isn't good enough. People, you know, Christian children should be saved from this cancer kids from france kids and i started thinking you know what it's awesome don't misunderstand me but everyone should have access to this vaccine that could you know eliminate them ever getting this cancer whether it's you know hpv cervical cancer or throat cancer or any of the other you know penile anal any, any of them but i thought at the time how do i reach people worldwide and protect not only the people that I know here, but worldwide, right? I mean, that's ultimately, to me, that's what's important. Helping, doing, helping, doing good, really just protecting as many people as possible. That's why I launched the supermanhpv.com website. It, you know, I sell nothing on that website. I launched the website back in October. I met with a woman every week to try to make it so it would be the most effective and, um, and I launched the website. Um, I got a call from an NBC News reporter, Maggie Fox. 
I was at a conference meeting and she's like, hi, is this Jason Mendelson? And I said, yes. She said, I found, I'm writing an article about HPV. I found your website. I'd like to interview you with, would that be okay? I'm like, yes, that's the whole, the whole reason I actually launched the website is I was trying to get the word out. She interviews me the next day I get, or that evening, excuse me, I get like 11 emails from people all over the country saying, I'm so glad I heard your story. Wow. You know, it made them feel better. So I emailed her quickly and I said, I want you to know your, your website or your, your article is a big hit. 11 people emailed me. She goes, Jason, you are likely going to be getting a call from NBC nightly news. 500,000 people read the article. Wow. The next day I go to the airport. I'm leaving to go to a meeting in, in Nashville and my phone rings. I'm not one foot out of my car. My phone rings and it says, hi, hi, this is so-and-so with, I'm an NBC part of the medical team. We'd like to interview you. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm going to Nashville. What time next week would you like to do that? They go, actually, we've already sent it. We've already sent a team to your house. Oh gosh. We'll be there in two hours. Oh man. I'm like, well, I'm kind of flying to Nashville. Can we do it in Nashville? They go, no, no, we do it in people's homes. So I, you know, at first thought I'm like, Oh my gosh, what's the change fee going to be? It was so silly. Like I was not thinking clearly because yeah, yeah, yeah. it was so, so startled. <laughs> and so let me, hopefully you'll like, you'll get a kick out of this. But I thought, you know what, if I'm, if I was ever going to get divorced in my entire life, it would have been that next phone call to my wife to say, Hey, Ronnie, <laughs> I, I said, Ronnie, where are you? She, she told me what she was doing. I don't remember what it was. I said, listen, NBC nightly news is going to be at our house in two hours. Oh gosh. And, and we should be on NBC and we should be on the nightly news this evening. And she was so funny. She was like, I need to get my hair done. My nails done. Like it was like, <laughs> clockwork. I literally drove home from the airport. NBC news showed up less than an hour later and we got interviewed and it showed up that night. I left to go back to my meeting or to go to my meeting. And I was oh. at the airport waiting for my flight and it showed up on the news. Oh my gosh. Right there. And I, and, and I gave a little mini HPV webs. Um, Little, little, excuse me, um, HPV seminar to the people at the bar next to my flight because <laughs> I was on the news. But I think it's it's that ability to educate people and to know that I'm actually making a difference. I probably have 20-something discussions a week where people didn't know about it or hadn't given the vaccine or didn't understand what the pediatrician was saying when they brought up about the HPV vaccine because they talked about sex Mm-hmm. And HPV being the most common sexually transmitted disease, instead of discussing it as an anti-cancer vaccine, which I always say to people, if there is a vaccine and people said this will cure breast cancer, everyone would give it to their daughters. If someone said, here's a vaccine, it will cure prostate cancer, everybody would give it to their sons. The problem with the HPV vaccine, again, I'm sharing this with you as a non-doctor, because I tell people to go see their kids' pediatricians or family practice doctor. I don't tell people to get the vaccine. I say, speak to your medical, you know, speak to your um, doctor. Sure. And the problem is everyone discusses it about sex and no one says it's an anti-cancer vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I think We're working that, on that is, on our end. <laughs> I was going to say, I know that's changing because I've done multiple webinars that have 20 something plus physicians on them. And I'm trying to do as much as I can to get people to think in that manner. Yeah, that's an effort that's ongoing. So it's something that has been well understood. 
uh, and studied that you know for the low HPV rates that we have in this country it is one part parental slash patient hesitation and one part provider uh, you know doctor slash medical provider um, well hesitation there too uh, and so that's improving uh, but uh, there's a lot of effort as much put into that side of it I think as into the other side of it because it's that important people always ask me is that what Michael Douglas had like people always ask me mm -hmm. is this one and my answer always is and I'm happy to say it just like what we're saying right now is I always tell people this is the one thing he and I have in common outside of our love for Catherine Zeta-Jones <laughs> but people always say you know it must have been exhausting laying in bed 18 hours a day for the month of August. And I always tell people, yes, the only good thing is that I got to watch seven years of Lost in two and a half weeks. <laughs> hey, that, that really hits home with Karen and me, too. Yeah, it does. Both huge Lost fans. Okay, yes. so <laughs> did you love everything about it except the last episode? I actually yeah. even loved the last episode. Did you? Mm -hmm. I actually like a lot about it. Even the last season and the last episode, I yeah. I I found a lot to like in it. There, it okay. was not, it was not a slam dunk, but it was I don't know. I thought it was better than the Sopranos last episode. So I like that. Yeah, Jason, what is in your future? What are you planning um, in the near future? Thank you for asking. I'm very excited to share that we just got approval to have a Smash Cancer tennis tournament at the USTA National Campus in Lake Nona, Florida, which is just outside of Orlando. And um, I'm having that event, raising funds to be able to provide transportation, so gas cards primarily, for patients that need assistance getting to chemo and radiation appointments. I was fortunate not to need assistance, but I know there are plenty of people that need assistance as well as raising money for people that need assistance with dental care. My um, ENT told me a story where he actually was removing teeth because people couldn't afford dental care. And mm -hmm. it, it just seems like people need assistance and that we can provide it. Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful. And if people want to learn more about you, learn more about Superman HPV, learn more about throat and neck cancers, where can they find you on the internet? So you can certainly just Google my name, right? Jason Space Mendelson, Space HPV. But also I am on Facebook, either my first name, last name, and primarily Superman HPV is on Facebook, as well as I have a website, supermanhpv.com. And I'm on Twitter, same thing, Superman HPV. And um, I'm accessible and would love to help anyone who's looking for information, whether it be about the vaccine or about HPV, throat cancer, HPV in general. So anything I can do. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for all your generosity and sharing your story with us today, Jason. Thank you. And thank you everyone who tuned in and listened today. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa. You can find me uh, at my blog, PeteSgeekMD.com. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.